Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn it to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. In the 2006 movie, Pursuit of Happiness, actor Will Smith, before he slapped Chris Rock on live television, plays Chris Gardner, a struggling salesman based on the true story of a man by the same name. Wrestling with a financial instability, an embittered and alienated wife, and having to raise a keen and curious five-year-old, Gardner is dealt with the harsh realities of life. Having invested his entire savings to acquire and sell portable bone density scanners, which he soon finds out are very difficult to sell to medical professionals, Gardner and his wife barely makes it through the days with their very small and limited income. Well, trouble continues to mount up for Gardner as his family experiences growing financial constraints, overdue rent by several months, overdue taxes, parking tickets. Gardner's lot seems to fall on hard places and continues to do so. Eventually, Gardner's overworked and resentful wife leaves him to find a better paying job in another state, while Gardner and his son soon gets evicted from their apartment, having to spend their nights between hotels and homeless shelters, and even a night in a bathroom of a metro station. In one of the most impactful scenes in the movie, in the lowest moment of Gardner's life, Will Smith's character says these words as he reflects on the pursuit of happiness. And I quote, It was right then that I started thinking about Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence and the part about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I remember thinking, how did he know to put the word pursuit in there? That maybe happiness is something that we can only pursue. And maybe we can actually never have it, no matter what. Well, the turning point of Gardner's life comes when he is given an opportunity to participate in a six-month unpaid internship at a prestigious brokerage firm where he would have to compete against 20 eager and ambitious interns, where upon the completion of the internship, the firm would pick just one intern and offer them a paid position. Obviously, the odds were against Gardner, disadvantaged by his uh, limited work hours, having to care for his young son, and having to sell the bone density scanners to make ends meet. In the meantime, Gardner grits his way through this unpaid internship and overcomes all odds through an extremely difficult season and eventually obtains the paid position as a stockbroker. And at the end of the movie, in the epilogue, it even reveals that Gardner went on to form his own multi-million dollar brokerage firm, presumably achieving the seemingly insurmountable happiness. The moral lesson of the movie, if you want something, work hard at it. Grit your way to get what you want. But the question for you and me this afternoon, is happiness truly achievable at the end of the tunnel of sheer hard work and grit? Is happiness really obtainable through blood, sweat, and tears? I wonder what you think about happiness. Is true, lasting happiness attainable, or is it merely a pursuit? In our psalm this afternoon, the psalmist speaks confidently of the certainty of a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Our psalm speaks about the greatest joy, the most satisfying joy, 
Well, the question for us this afternoon, how can we obtain it? How can we experience it and not merely pursue it? Our passage teaches us how. We're continuing our study through our series, Summer in the Psalms, in which we are looking to cover 10 psalms each summer. And this summer, we're looking at chapters 11 through 20. I've been encouraging our church to read through the entire book of Psalm, all 150 relatively short chapters this summer. And so with 33 weekdays of summer left, Monday through Friday, you can still read in its entirety if you read about four and a half chapters each weekday. Or if you already started reading in June, just continue reading two to three chapters and you will be at a good pace to finish it at the end of August. The psalm we'll be studying today is Psalm chapter 16, a well-known psalm. It is a psalm that is a favorite of many and often referred to it as the Easter psalm or the resurrection psalm due to its two, not one, but two of his verses are being quoted in two different places in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul in two different places in the book of Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 13. And these verses refers directly that the purpose of the psalmist's words were pointing to Jesus Christ in whom the psalmist's words would be fulfilled. Hence, this psalm is a prophetic psalm. It is a messianic psalm. It is a Christward psalm which perhaps may be the reason why, although biblical commentators cannot come up with a consensus on what the heading of the psalm, a mictum of David, means, I love what one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century renowned Baptist preacher, contends, that a mictum means the golden psalm, which is most appropriate since the matter of the psalm is as the most fine gold. Spurgeon explains another commentator calls Psalm 16 David's jewel or a notable song and says that another commentator says the word signifies a secret or a mystery and indicates the depth of doctrinal and spiritual import in these sacred compositions. Hence, if this be true, the true interpretations, it accords well with the other. When the two are put up together, they make up a name which every reader will remember, which will bring the precious subject at once to mind, the song of the precious secret, the golden song. We'll interpret the word miktum however you want to, but the importance, the key, is in the following verses. And from it, I'd like to share with you four precious secrets, four precious secrets to everlasting joy or fullness of joy, or pleasures forevermore. Four precious secrets to everlasting joy. So if you are here this afternoon seeking and hungry for some good news, a path, not a vain pursuit, but of true life and everlasting joy and certain hope, here are some gold nuggets for you to ponder and procure. Here's the outline so you can follow. What is the path to everlasting joy? Four points. Point number one, petition for protection from verse 1. Point number 2, profession of faith, from verses 2 to 4. Point number 3, praise for provision, verses 4 through 7. And point number 4, promise of pleasures forevermore, from verses 8 through 11. Petition, profession, praise, and promise. Brothers and sisters, I pray that if any of you are here this afternoon who needs a dose of true Christian joy, unshakable joy, I pray these words will remind you of the precious treasures we have been given in this psalm. 
If you are here and you are not a Christian, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We've been praying for you, and we pray that you would know that this word is for you. We pray that this psalm will point you to the one who is the path to everlasting joy, not merely a pursuit. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ. So we pray the Lord will give you ears to hear and eyes to see God's word spoken to you today, to stir within you faith in Christ Jesus, the only one and true living Savior of the world. Amen? So without further ado, let's now turn to our passage found on page 453 in your blue Bibles around you. And as you listen, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain the words. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's Word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. What is the path to everlasting joy? First precious secret, petition God for protection from verse 1. Petition God for protection. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, did Pastor James really have to make this a four-point sermon using only one verse, 4.1? Well, dear church member, I appreciate you very much. You've done your homework. You've studied the passage beforehand to prepare your hearts and minds for this message. Good for you. I commend you. Or you attended CG Community Group this past week, and you discussed the passage And probably nobody in your CG came up with a four-point homiletical outline. But I want to make a case that verse 1 stands out in this psalm because this very verse sets the course for the whole entire psalm. Look again at verse 1. It says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The first observation you can make from this verse is that this psalm begins as a prayer. The psalm's heading says it is a mictum of David. So we know that David is the author who is crying out to God in prayer. And again, it is this petition that shapes this entire psalm. Preserve me, O God. Other translations say, protect me, O God, or keep me safe, my God. But whereas in other psalms, David's prayers, save me, O my God, in Psalm 3-7, Answer me when I call, O God, in Psalm 4.1. Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life, in Psalm 6.4. Arise, O Lord, in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. How long, O Lord, in Psalm 13. 
All these other phrases of calling out to God and crying out to God seems to be petitioning God for more of an immediate rescue and deliverance from imminent threats. In Psalm 16, the Hebrew word shamer, preserve or protect, the same word used in Psalm 12:7, you will guard us from this generation forever, seems to indicate the psalmist's resolve or commitment to persevere in the course he was currently experiencing as long as God would continue to preserve and protect him for the long haul. Just as the shepherd boy David watched over his sheep before he became king, David's plea was for God to keep watch over him, for God to keep on guarding through even impending fatal threats, which we'll read about in verse 10. The reason why I point this out is because unlike the other previously mentioned psalms, This psalm is not merely a prayer of lament or a prayer of desperation. This prayer quickly turns into a profession of faith and then to a psalm of praise and then to a proclamation of confidence in God. David says, I'm in a dangerous situation. David says, I'm in a life-threatening crisis. Preserve, O God. Protect, O God. Keep me safe, O God. But what he's asking seems to be more than just protection now, rescue from danger now. It seems the psalmist has something beyond in mind, you see. Now we're going to get to that, but let's consider how David's desperation, the psalmist's petition quickly turns into a testimony of faith. The next phrase tells us how. For in you I take refuge. For or because You are my refuge because you are my hiding place, because you are my safe shelter, because you are my shield in you. I know I am secure. It's hard to tell, isn't it, whether this is actually a prayer or a profession, and I think that's the purpose of it. When you pray to the one true living God, there are certain things you can rest assured God will answer. You don't have to question or second guess how God will respond when your prayers are consistent with His very character. And here in this instance, since God is the mighty protector, since God is the sovereign Savior, when you run to Him for protection, He answers. You don't need to tell a wall to barricade. You don't need to tell a shield to obstruct. Mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That is who he is, the very present help in time of need. Amen? Which challenges us. What is your petition when difficulties of life come your way? Do you find yourself preserving yourself? Or do you plead the Lord for his protection? I dare say too many Christians are busy playing it safe. Christians way too often neglect our God, who is a sovereign Savior. Too often Christians are all about self-preservation. Instead of being able to sing, you are my one defense, Christians are often singing, I am my own defense. Hesitant to commit to too much time or too much money or too much emotional or relational investment regarding faith. Skeptical about self-sacrifice and service for the fear of burnout or the fear of failure, or the fear of exposure, reticent about getting too involved or being too known in God's community of faith because of some bad past church experience? Well, I get it. We all get it. 
We live in a broken, fallen world, and I don't undermine, nobody does undermine or negate those bad experiences at all. You should be wise. You should be wise about your time and your money and your investment emotionally, relationally, and your service. I'm not saying that anyone should be recklessly daring for the sake of daring without wisdom at all. That's not what we're saying. That's not what the scripture is saying. The question is, are you attempting to preserve yourself? Are you attempting to save yourself? Or is God your protector? Is God your keeper? Is God your refuge? David was facing life-threatening danger. Yet he clings to God in trust. He runs to God for shelter. He calls on God for help. I believe so many Christians miss out on experiencing God's provision when they shrivel back in fear, when they shrink up in self-preservation mode. Guarantee you this, you will never grow beyond your capacity. You will never mature in your faith when you are always comfortable in your own self-designated boundaries. And you never run head-on and never press on into what God is calling you to trust Him as your sovereign protector. That's because we ourselves are so limited. Brothers and sisters, listen, it is within the context and the boundary of God's character. David is boldly praying and wherein his prayers turn into profession. It is within the context and boundary of God's character, David's prayer turns into a profession, a declaration, a testimony of faith. And may I emphasize, it is through a really tough and dire situation that David finds a doorway to something beyond danger, something beyond death. So what is the psalmist's trust? What is the path to everlasting joy? Point number two. Second precious secret, profession of faith from verses 2 to 4. Look with me to verse 2 again. It says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You notice in these three verses, the psalmist's relationship to God in verse 2, to other believers in verse 3, and to the world in verse 4. The confidence of David's petition is grounded in David's profession of faith. There's clarity in who he is before God, who he is in relation to fellow believers, who they are and what they are who worship other gods. First, David professes who God is. Look at verse 2 again. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. For those of you observant readers, you see the first Lord is spelled capital L, and then capital O-R-D. It's all in caps. And it's the translation for God's covenant name, Yahweh. The name of God, the name of, of the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true living God, as opposed to all other false gods. The God of the Bible, His name is Yahweh. A name that would not even be uttered by God's people when reading the Scriptures because the name itself was so holy and so precious. And David says, that holy God, Yahweh, is my Lord. And if you look at the second Lord, capital L, and small case, L-O-R-D, right? And that name is my Adonai, or it means my master, or my sovereign, my Lord. And so upon that profession, the psalmist knows his own state and his own standing, Because that is who he is, Yahweh Adonai, 
I know I have no good apart from you. All my welfare, all my worth, all my happiness is in you and only you. In you, Yahweh Adonai is my well-being. All of it is from you. There is nothing you cannot provide. There is nothing anyone else can provide that God has not provided. I have no good. I have nothing apart from you. That was his confession, you see. It's what James 1.17 affirms. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love Dr. James Johnston's meditation on this idea, and I quote, The essence of sin is looking for good outside of God's provision and His will. A young woman thinks she will find love and security if she gives into her boyfriend. But what is she doing? She is looking for a good thing, namely love and security, apart from God and His will for her life. A man indulges himself in pornography or an office romance. He is looking for a good thing, namely sexual pleasures, but he is looking for it apart from God. A woman tells her friends the latest gossip to make herself feel significant and to feel like she's in the in crowd. Well, what is she doing? She wants a good thing, doesn't she? She wants to feel like she matters and is important, but rather she should feel precious because God created her in his image and Christ died to redeem her. But instead, she bases her significance on having the latest juicy news. She is looking for good apart from God. How about when an unforgiving man craves justice, a good thing, but he takes revenge into his own hands when God says, vengeance is mine? How about a greedy person who clings to possessions for security instead of taking refuge in God? When we dig beneath the surface of any sin in our lives, we're trying to achieve something good apart from God and his ways. Close quote. Isn't that helpful? Again, in what ways are you self-preserving instead of trusting God in faith? As John Kelvin puts it, and I quote, it will not suffice simply to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good and that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him. They will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. Close quote. Simply, what Calvin is saying is you cannot commit to God unless you believe that God is good and that only God is good. See, again, this was David's foundational theology. His faith, his trust, his profession of faith, his refuge. And it's where from the psalmist other relationships are defined. In verse 3, David articulates his relationship with fellow believers. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The word saints refers to holy ones or holy people. And David calls them excellent ones or noble ones in whom is all my delight. Of course, the reason they are saints, of course, the reason why they are excellent and holy and noble is because they love and fear God, not for any other reason. They are delightful, not over God, but because of God in them. They are ones who shared David's theology and profession of faith. 
God is good, and I have no good apart from him. That's what they all shared, and hence they were saints. They were the holy ones. They were the excellent ones. I wonder if this is how you feel about other brothers and sisters in the faith. Do you consider them as excellent ones? Do you find them delightful? Look at the people next to you. Don't do it right now. But do you find other Christian brothers and sisters delightful? Do you find them radiating God's goodness and joy? There's much to say about why some other Christian may not display such godly characteristics. We don't know what's going on in their lives. But the question for you mainly is, is it true of you? Would David walk into NCBC and say, as for the saints in Rockville, Montgomery County, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In our singing, in our hearing of the word, in our serving, in our loving, will David say, these are the saints, they are delightful. How about if David walked into your home or walked into your bedroom, will he say the same? They are all my delight. And the question for you is, if not, why not? I want to encourage you to ask the Spirit of God to examine your heart and your life. Why you who profess to be a Christian is perhaps not a delight, does not display God's goodness and joy in your life, in your speech, in your love. It's true, we go through different seasons in life, difficult days, difficult weeks, difficult months, sometimes years Some of us naturally has a angry-looking face. I just learned this word, RBF, resting bulldog face. So we have to try really hard to not look so angry all the time. Sometimes my wife and kids always tell me, stop yelling. I just tell them I naturally have a loud voice. I can't help it. Anyways, how do you live out the reality of sorrowful yet always rejoicing? How do you do it? Have a right view and understanding. Have a right theology about suffering and sin. Have a right theology about God, who He is and who you are in light of Him. And have a right theology of what the church is. That will set us onto a path to life and everlasting joy. Because look at the contrast of those who won't, who are not, who do not and will not experience such joy and happiness whose life will be marked by an empty and vain pursuit. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You see, the psalmist clearly knows the fate of those who run after other gods, the God of money, the God of sex, the God of fame and power and self-pleasure. Their sorrows will surely multiply. It will surely, certainly increase their pain. Their misery will have no end. Why? Because their path is a path that leads to destruction and death. Because their God is a God who aims to kill, steal, and destroy. Their God, the scripture says, is a father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, according to John 8, 44. Hence, the psalmist commits, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What he's saying is, I won't participate in their godless libations. I won't participate in their pagan sacrifices. I won't pray to their gods that leads to death. I will say no to what goes against God. I won't even utter it from my lips. See, brothers and sisters, I wonder if you share the same commitments as the psalmist, the same discernment, 
The same resolve. You won't even say those names. Do you say no to sin? Do you say no to temptation? How does your nose testify of your witness of God? Do you fight with all your might to kill sin before it kills you and kills your faith? Being happy in God, brothers and sisters, starts with saying no. You cannot be happy and satisfied in God if you are riding the fence, one foot in the church and one foot in the world, one eye on the Bible and one eye on pornography or endless Netflix or social media or stock market or Twitter friends, one day in discipling relationships and another day in perverse dating relationships, whatever it is for you, you cannot do both. Maybe if you're thinking, this is too much, oh my goodness, this is too hard. Well, then perhaps this is the reason why you don't find satisfaction in God. Perhaps that's the reason why you don't know joy in the midst of suffering. Perhaps that's the reason why you are full of anxiety and stress and worry instead of freedom and hope and everlasting joy in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the psalmist isn't ignorant of the hardships. The psalmist isn't blind to the reality of the pressures and temptations of this world. That's why he himself prayed and pled the Lord for preservation and protection. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What an example David displays for us when faced with fiery trials, petitioning God and professing his trust on him. Which reminds me of J.C. Ryle when he said, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke prayer. What is your life marked by, prayer or sin? It's simple as that. If you want to kill sin in your life, start by praying to God and trusting Him as your safe refuge. The precious path to everlasting joy is to know God and to know yourself in light of Him and to know and delight in fellow believers, and to know and discern and not engage in the worldly worship of false gods that will lead to death. That's point number two. Point number three, what is the path to everlasting joy? Third and precious secret, third gold nugget, praise for provision. Praise for provision. Look at verses five through seven. It says this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. As the psalmist petitions turn to profession, recalling who God is and who he himself is in light of him, as the psalmist remembers the great cloud of witnesses he is surrounded by in the holy ones who stood with him, as the psalmist discerns that he will not participate in the wicked and false worship of false gods, The psalmist now explodes in praise for all the ways his gracious and good Yahweh has provided. Suddenly he remembers all the ways that the Lord has been good and gracious. David is reminded how he is so blessed in verse 5 and 6, and he blesses God in verse 7. So three ways David says he is blessed, but it's actually just saying the same thing. Yahweh is my chosen portion, Yahweh is my cup, and Yahweh is my lot. In other words, David is praising God. Yahweh is mine, and I am his. It's like Solomon 6.3. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Those descriptions, chosen portion and cup and lot, each describes different things, but the objective of what they modify is, in fact, Yahweh. 
He is my portion, my cup, my lot. So, to mean that God is His chosen portion means to remind us of Numbers 18, verses 20 through 24, when God divided the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel, but to the tribe of Levites, remember, who are set apart as priesthood of the nation of Israel, God did not designate land for them. Why? Because, as it says in Numbers 18, verse 20, which reads like this, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them, because I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So in saying that God was their portion, God wasn't jipping the Levites out of their inheritance. God was giving them the best, the choicest portion. God was giving them himself. Amen? So many Christians live today in discontentment. So many Christians live today in discontentment and dissatisfied because they fail to recognize that they have the choicest portion, don't they? Better than prime real estate, better than Amazon stocks, better than 401k. I have none of these, so I don't know, but I think, I believe in the word. Truly, really, to have Yahweh as our portion is to know that all the provisions in life we would ever need in life has been met by God. Can I get an amen? Come on, somebody. It's hot in here, but we're worshiping the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that you have the choicest portion? that he is your chosen portion. The psalmist prays that God is my cup. What does that mean? It's meant to symbolize one's destiny, what one is given to drink. So in Psalm 23, 5, David praises God in a similar way. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Contrarily, we see in Scripture how for the wicked is reserved the cup of wrath, according to Jeremiah 25, 15. And so again, David praises God that he is his cup. And also, he says, he holds my lot. He explained what that means in verse 6. Look at verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The psalmist recognizes and testifies that because God himself is his chosen portion and cup and lot, the psalmist says, indeed, truly, I have a beautiful inheritance. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, I wonder if Yahweh is the beautiful inheritance you know and own and praise Him for. The greatest blessing God can give us is Himself. And if we do not have God, then no other gift, no other gift. You could have everything in this world that we try to obtain for ourselves. If you don't have God, it would mean nothing. Why do you think the most richest people, the most beautiful people, the most powerful and successful people are often the most miserable people in this world? Why do you think even amongst us, someone can be the most intelligent or the most achieved, someone can be the tallest or the handsomest or the most beautiful, someone can be ill or poor or live with meager means, yet often it is not their portion that defines happiness? Brothers and sisters and friends and visitors, how is it possible for David who we know was a sinner, just like us. In fact, he was an adulterer, wasn't he? In fact, he was a murderer, wasn't he? How was it possible for David to know and own such blessed and beautiful inheritance? And how can we, as wretched sinners, also know and own God as our portion and cup and lot? Because David knew the promise of the promised one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
Isn't it fascinating that the following verse, verse 7 and on, leads us right to it? After realizing that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup and my lot, that he has a beautiful inheritance, David busts out in blessing him for counsel. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. What is David saying? What is David remembering? How does David hear God's counsel? How is David instructed in his heart? David is meditating on God's word just like you and I are doing right now. Hallelujah. David is recalling God's promise. David is recalling God's gospel that sinners like himself facing imminent death threats, wretched as he can have God for his own. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is not only David's gospel, but it is also our gospel. Amen? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news for you and me. It's the best news that you or anyone will ever hear. That a holy God created this entire massive and expansive universe. Galaxies upon galaxies. Billions upon trillions of stars decorating space to display to us the height of His creation. Man and woman created in His image and love. And all of that, all of His creation to display to us His glory and for us to know His good pleasure. Amen? Have you seen the James Webb telescope images this week? He is the intelligent designer, you see. He is the beautiful creator. He is the mastermind behind all of it, the universe, the galaxies. He is the Lord of all history and creation. Hallelujah. Yet though man was created to experience his love and to feast upon his wonderful provisions, man disobeyed and distrusted God's word and rebelled against God. Hence, we were separated from God on a path to a consequential and eventual death, incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying curse and power of sin. And no amount of good works, no amount of religious deeds, no amount of self-effort or self-preservation could win ourselves a right standing or righteousness or peace or true lasting happiness. Because on this side of the earth, everything fades, everything vanishes, everything dies. There is no everlasting love. There is no everlasting joy here. There is no everlasting hope. The author of Ecclesiastes says, all vanities, all meaninglessness, all just a vapor, all smoke. That's the reality of this side of the earth. That was the destiny that we would have been living and dying to. That was it. But God, but God had a plan from the very beginning that through our sufferings, that through our sorrows, through our sins, that we would come to know His sinless Son, the promised Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ. By His sinless life, by His substitute death on the cross, by His prophesied resurrection from death on the third day, by His ascension to the right hand of God as the sovereign ruler of the world, as He took upon Himself the cup of wrath, satisfying the just judgment reserved and sentenced for us, Jesus invites all, you and me, who would repent and believe in Him to receive new life and everlasting life in Him. His death, our death. His life, our new life. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. Hallelujah. And Scripture says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, anyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So friends and visitors, if you are here and know yourself to not be a Christian or you're simply just not sure that you are, this invitation is for you. 
What is your ultimate end? What is your source of happiness? Is it a mere pursuit? Or is it the only person who can offer it to you? Do you presume that you deserve happiness? Do you presume that it will last life? Liberty, maybe, but happiness? Happiness only in Jesus. Only in Jesus can you know it truly. Only in Jesus can you know life's meaning, life's purpose. Only in Jesus will you ever be able to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. If you doubt me, just Google search the final words of famous atheists who rejected God and cursed God all their lives. Their words do not come close, not even close to the psalmist in the face of death in verse 6. Let me read you a couple of atheist final words. Thomas Paine, leading atheistic writer in American colonies, final words. Stay with me, for God's sake. I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh Lord, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been punished. Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave me. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me for I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. How about Napoleon Bonaparte, French emperor who brought death to millions to satisfy his selfish ambitions for world conquest. He said, as he was dying, I die before my time and my body will be given back to the earth. Such is the fate of him who has been called the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of God. David Hume, an atheist philosopher famous for his religious skepticism, his last words, he cried aloud in his deathbed, I am in flames. It is said his desperation was so horrible as he was crying out, I am in flames. Of course, these godless men would spend their final moments on earth in miserable, agonizing pain. And what's worse is that they would experience a far greater suffering in hell because they did not call on Christ as Savior. But contrast the words of the psalmist in our final point, point number four, what is the path to everlasting joy? Fourth and finally, fourth and final precious gold promises of pleasures forevermore. Look at verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, these verses are quoted by Peter in Acts 2, verses 25 through 28, and verse 10 is quoted by Paul in Acts 13, 35. And they both explain these verses this way, so let me just read for you Acts 29 through 35, which says this. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. David did not ascend to the heavens, 
But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the place of honor, we can say with the psalmist, Hallelujah, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Hallelujah. Come what may, come what trials, come what sufferings and sorrows, come what death threats, I will not be shaken. Hallelujah. Jesus is at my right hand. Jesus is my place of honor. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This earthly life will soon pass away. This mortal flesh will soon fade away into the dust. Yet I will not be abandoned even in death. Hallelujah. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Death is just a doorway. Death is just a pathway. Hallelujah. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness. Everything you could experience about joy, the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen? Brothers and sisters, in Christ, happiness is not merely a pursuit. It is a certainty. It is an assurance. No other religion in this world can offer you this good news, but Jesus does. It is a certainty. It is a guarantee. First Peter 1, 3 through 7 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone Christ alone, what is our only confidence that our souls belong to Him? And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What is the path to everlasting joy? Petition Christ. Profess Christ. Praise Christ. And hope in the promises of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of your truth, reminder of your good news, that in Christ we have everlasting joy, that we have everlasting peace and hope, and that we get to experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Father, our mortal bodies are fading away, are perishing, our minds are wasting away, but Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, death is only a doorway. It is not the end. We thank you that you have made known to us the path of life, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We praise you. We thank you. We honor you for being our Yahweh Adonai, our master, our covenant-keeping God who will keep us to the end. For those reasons, we glorify you and honor you. And in Christ's name, we hold on and cling to you and trust in you.
until you return. In Jesus' name.